Este inmueble acogerá también la Casa de la Poesía y el Café Literario Sense Mayá. Un abarcador diverso programa por los 120 años del natalicio de Nicolás Quilín propone la filial de la fundación que lleva su nombre en el Camagüey Natal del Poeta Nacional de Cuba. En epigrama, Bárbara Suárez Ábalos.
cree que sin sol la realidad es frágil, que hay criaturas que no pueden ser. Episode 16 of For All Time. I'm Don Johnson. TC and COB. Great fame also imposes a kind of cloister to those who join its ranks. Tom Cruise had been a movie star since he was 21, with two popular movies in the same year, The Outsiders and Risky Business. By age 25, he was the biggest star in Hollywood, on his way to becoming one of the most famous movie legends in history. At the same age, Miscavige had become the de facto leader of Scientology. Each of these men assumed extraordinary responsibilities when their peers were barely beginning their careers. Their youth and position set them apart, so it was natural that the two such powerful, isolated men would see themselves mirrored in each other. A number of Sea Org members 
who observed Cruz when he came to Gold Base, remarked that he seemed liberated to be in an environment where no one hassled him, or took his photograph, or asked for autographs. There were cottages built for the use of other well-known Scientologists, such as John Travolta, Kirstie Alley, Edgar Winter, and Priscilla Presley, so the base can sometimes feel like a secret celebrity spa. Once, Miscavige had the entire Gold Base crew line up at the gate and salute Cruz when he arrived. Cruz must have felt self-conscious about this display because it only happened once. People on the base have been directed not to speak to Cruz at all unless spoken to. In this way, Cruz tastes the life that Miscavige has lived for decades, one of seclusion and deference, concentrated on spiritual advancement. Similarly, after becoming associated with Cruz, the style of Miscavige's life began to reflect that of a fantastically wealthy and leisured movie star. He normally awakens at noon with a cup of coffee and a camel cigarette. The coffee is fresh ground Starbucks, preferably a Guatemala or Arabian mocha java, made with distilled water, to which he adds raw sugar and half and half. Then he takes breakfast, the first of his five meals. According to Miscavige's former chef, Sinar Parman, the church leader was eating, quote, three squares and a snack at night, until the late 90s. One day, while on a Delta flight from L.A. to Clearwater, Miscavige walked to the cabin from his seat in first class and showed some photos from a muscle magazine to Parman and his steward, who traveled with him. He told them he wanted to, quote, get ripped and have six-pack abs, end quote. After the flight, Miscavige changed physical trainers and began taking bodybuilding supplements. He also adopted a strict diet that requires each meal to be at least 40% protein and to contain no more than 400 calories. Soon, he was looking like the men in the muscle magazines. To maintain his physique, Miscavige's chefs have to enter each portion size into a computer, including the cream in his morning coffee. Miscavige often starts with an omelet of one whole egg and five egg whites. Two and a half hours later, lunch is provided. Two choices would be prepared daily for both him and his wife, four meals altogether. Miscavige prefers pizza, soup, and submarine sandwiches. Throughout the day, cigarettes, bottled water, and protein bars are stationed wherever he might be working. Dinner is a five-course meal. And once again, dual entrees are prepared for him to choose from. Miscavige's favorite foods include wild mushroom risotto, linguine and white clam sauce, and pâté de foie gras. Fresh fruit and vegetables are purchased from local markets or shipped in from overseas. Several times a week, a truck from Santa Monica brings seafood from seafood such as Atlantic salmon or live lobster flown in fresh from the East Coast or Canada. Corn-fed lamb arrives from New Zealand. When guests such as Tom Cruise come to dinner, the kitchen goes into extravagant bursts of invention, with ingredients sometimes flown in from different continents. Two hours after dinner, the first evening snack arrives with lighter offerings, such as Italian white bean soup or clam chowder. After midnight, there is a final late-night snack, a selection of non-fat cheeses, an apple crisp, or blueberry crepes, often garnished with edible flowers. Shelley usually preferred a fruit platter. She would drink only almond milk, which is made on site from all organic almonds. 
She insisted that all the food be consistent with the diet recommended for their blood type. Both Shelley and David are type O. Two full-time chefs work all day preparing these meals and several full-time stewards to serve them. According to Claire Hetty, who oversaw the finances for the Religious Technology Center between 2000 and 2004, the food costs for David and Shelley and their guests would range between 3000 to as much as 20000 per week. At the end of the evening, Miscavige retires to his den and drinks Macallan scotch and plays backgammon with members of his entourage or listens to music on his $150,000 stereo system. He loves Michael Jackson. Or watches movies in his private screening room. His favorite films are Scarface and the Godfather trilogy. He usually turns around in three or, uh, turns in at around three or four in the morning. Miscavige enjoys shooting pool or playing video games in his lounge. He has a tanning bed and a high-end gym that few people other than crews are permitted to use. Although he is short in stature, Miscavige exudes physical power. He favors tight-fitting t-shirts that show off his chiseled biceps. He collects guns, maintains at least six motorcycles, and has a number of automobiles, including an armor-plated GMC Safari van with bulletproof windows and satellite television, and a souped-up Celine Mustang that Cruz gave him to match his own. His uniforms and business suits are fashioned by Richard Lim, a Los Angeles tailor whose clients include Cruz, Will Smith, and Martin Sheen. Miscavige's shoes are custom-made in London by John Lobb, bootmaker to the royal family. His wardrobe fills an entire room. Two full-time stewards are responsible for his cleaning and laundry. Cruz admired the house cleaning so much, even Miscavige's light bulbs are polished once a month, that the church leader sent a Sea Org team to Cruz's Telluride retreat to train the star's staff. Until 2007, when he traveled, Miscavige would often rent Cruz's Gulfstream jet, but he has since upgraded to a roomier Boeing business jet at a cost of $30,000 to $50,000 per trip. He brings along his personal hairdresser and chiropractor. He loves underwater photography, and when he returns from his annual trip on the free winds, he has the photography staff put the photos into slides so they can be appreciated by the entire Gold Base staff. The contrast with the other Sea Org members is stark. They eat in a mess hall, which features a meat and potatoes diet and salad bar, except for occasional extended periods of rice and beans for those who are being punished. The average cost per meal as of 2005, according to Mark Headley, who participated in the financial planning each week, was about 75 cents a head, significantly less than what is spent per inmate in the California prison system. When members join the Sea Org, they are issued two sets of pants, two shirts, and a pair of shoes, which is their lifetime clothing allotment. Anything else, they purchase themselves. Although the nominal pay for Sea Org members is $50 a week, they are fined for various infractions, so it's not unusual to be paid as little as $13 or $14. Married couples at Gold Base share a two-bedroom apartment with two other couples, meaning that one pair sleeps on the couch. In any case, few get more than five or six hours of sleep a night. There are lavish exercise facilities at the base, an Olympic pool, a golf course, basketball courts, but they are rarely used. Few are permitted to have access to computers. 
Every personal phone call is listened to. Every letter is inspected. Bank records are opened and kept of how much money people have. Records kept of how much money people have. Cultural touchstones common to most Americans are often lost on Sea Org members at the Gold Base. They may not know the name of the President of the United States or be able to tell the difference between the Republican and Democratic parties. It's not as if there is no access to outside information. There's a big screen television in the dining hall and people can listen to the radio or subscribe to newspapers and magazines. However, news from the outside world begins to lose its relevance when people are outside of the wider society for extended periods of time. Many Sea Org members have not left the base for a decade. On April 30th of each year, Scientology staff from around the world are pressed to contribute to Miscavige's birthday present. One year, as birthday assessments were being passed around, few could contribute because they hadn't been paid for months. Finally, staffers got their back pay so that they could make their donations. Janella Webster, who worked directly under Miscavige for 15 years, received $325, out of which she paid $150 for Miscavige's gift. Such presents include tailored suits and leather jackets, high-end cameras, diving equipment, Italian shoes, and a handmade titanium bicycle. One year, Flag Service Org in Clearwater gave him a Virus 985C34V, a motorcycle with a retail price of $70,000. Another division presented him with a BMW. Miscavige keeps a number of dogs, including five beagles. He had blue vests made up for each one of them, with four stripes on the shoulder, Oh, with four stripes on the shoulder epaulets, indicating the rank of Sea Org captain. He insists that people salute the dogs as they parade by. The dogs have a mini treadmill where they work out. A full-time staff member feeds, walks, and trains the dogs, takes them to the veterinarium, and enters one of them, Jelly, into contests where he has attained championship status. Another of Miscavige's favorites, a Dalmatian pit bull mix named Buster, went on a rampage one day and killed ten peacocks on the property, then proudly laid them all out laid them out for all to see. Buster has also attacked various members of the staff, sending one elderly woman to the emergency room and earning Buster his own ethics folder. Miscavige eventually had the dog taken away to another Sea Org base, even though he believed that Buster had a nose for quote out ethics behavior. The relieved staff members joked that Buster had been sent to dog RPF. From an early age, Miscavige had taken control of his family. His father, Ron Sr., joined the Sea Org followed by a charge of attempted rape lodged against him in 1985. Former church members say that significant church resources were used to contain the scandal and that David forced his father to join the Sea Org. Because David's mother, Loretta, refused to sign up for that, she and Ron agreed to divorce. She continued in Scientology, rising to the summit of an OT-8. She worked as an accountant for the law firm of Greta Van Susteren, the television commentator, and her husband, John Cole, both Scientologists, who maintain a mansion on Clearwater Beach. Loretta was a heavy smoker who suffered from emphysema. I want to read that one more time. 
She worked as an accountant for the law firm of Greta Van Susteren, the television commentator, and her husband, John Cole, both Scientologists, who maintain a mansion on Clearwater Beach. Loretta was a heavy smoker who suffered from emphysema and obesity, scarcely the image of an operating thetan. She is OT8, after all. But her self-deprecating, sometimes goofy sense of humor made her popular among the staff and upper-level Scientologists. Quote, the court jester of the Scientology Country Club, as Rathburn called her. That'd be Marty Rathburn. And since I'm commentating now, that would be the RPF is basically a hole, so they sent the dog to, like, the dog hole. Um, I'm just going to continue. Loretta's regal position as leader's mother allowed her to give rein to gossipy stories about Dave's childhood, which she told in a thick Philly accent. Miscavige complained that his mother was trying to destroy him. He ordered Rathburn to run a security check on her using the E-meter. When Loretta realized what he was up to, she burst out laughing. Miscavige sent his personal trainer to help his mother get in shape, and he had church members monitoring her diet, but her chronic health problems overtook her. Quote, she was sick for a long time. Her granddaughter, Jenna Miscavige-Hill, recalled she was not happy with the turn the church took. Sometimes Loretta would burst into tears. Quote, I would try to help her the only way I knew how, Hill said. Quote, she was an amazing grandma. Loretta Miscavige died in 2005. The level of abuse at the Gold Base was increasing year by year as, unpoliced by outside forces, other senior executives began emulating their leader. Rinder, DeVault, and Rathburn all admitted to striking other staff members. Even some of the women became physically aggressive, slapping underlings when they didn't perform up to standard. Debbie Cook, the former leader of Flag Base, says that although Miscavige never struck her, he ordered his communicator to do so. Another time, she said, he told his communicator to break Cook's finger. She bent Cook's finger, but failed to actually break it. Miscavige can be charming and kind, especially to Sea Org members who need emotional or medical assistance. He has a glittering smile and a commanding voice, and yet former Scientologists who were close to him recall that his constant profanity and burst of unprovoked violence kept everyone off balance. Jefferson Hawkins, a former Sea Org executive who had worked with Paul Haggis on the rejected Dianetics campaign, says that he was beaten by Miscavige on five occasions the first time in 2002. He had just written in an infomercial for the church. Miscavige summoned him to a meeting where about 40 members were seated on one side of a long conference table. Miscavige routinely sits by himself on the other side. He began a tirade about the shortcomings of the infomercial. When Hawkins started to respond, Miscavige cut him short. The only thing I want to hear from you is your crimes, Miscavige said, meaning that Hawkins was to confess his subversive intentions. Then, without warning, Miscavige jumped on the table and launched himself at Hawkins, knocking him against a cubicle wall and battering him in the face. The two men fell to the floor, and their legs became entangled. Let go of my legs, Miscavige shouted. Miscavige extricated himself and left the room, leaving Hawkins on the floor, shocked, bruised, disheveled, humiliated, and staring at the 40 people who did nothing to support him. Get up! Get up! They told him. Don't make him wrong. Even if he had success, even if he had had access to a phone, Hawkins couldn't or wouldn't 
have called the police. If a Sea Org member were to seek outside help, he would be punished, either by being, de- not, uh, being declared a SP, or suppressive person, or by being sent off to do manual labor for months or years. Far more important, Hawkins believed, was the fact that his spiritual immortality was on the line. Scientology has made him aware of his eternal nature as he moved from life to life, erasing his fear of mortality. Without that, and... Mm. Without that, he would be doomed to dying over and over again. Quote, in ignorance and darkness, he said, never knowing my true nature as a spirit. Miscavige, he concluded, holds the power of eternal life and death over you. The church provided an affidavit of a former Sea Org member, Yale Lusgarden, who stated that she was present at the meeting and that the attack by Miscavige never happened. She claims that Hawkins made a mess of his presentation. He smelled of body odor. He was unshaven. His voice tone was very low, and he could hardly be heard. And he was merely instructed to shape up. On the other hand, Amy Scobie said she witnessed the attack. It was her cubicle the two men fell into. And after the altercation, she recalled, I gathered all the buttons from Jeff's shirt and the change from his pockets and gave them back to him. Tommy Davis later testified that he had conducted an investigation of the charges of abuse at the base. He said that all of the abuse had been committed by Rinder, Rathburn, and Devot, none by Miscavige. Of course, they all restate their claim in the documentary of this book. Tom Devot grew up with hmm, Tom Devot grew up in a little Central Florida town called Fort Meade. Perhaps you heard of it. When he was 10 years old in 1974, his cousin Dickie Thompson, a keyboardist in the Steve Miller Band, came to visit, riding a Harley-Davidson motorcycle. The year, that year, the band had a number one song, The Joker, and Thompson rode into town with a glow of fame around him. We had a weird stare, Devote remembered. He invited my sister, he had a weird stare, he invited my sister to meet Steve Miller and John Travolta. Within a year, most of DeVoit's family had joined the Church of Scientology. In July 1977, 13-year-old Tom DeVoit signed the billion-year contract for the Sea Org. Not just signing away your life. Signing away the full bill. DeVoit became one of Miscavige's allies and moved up the bureaucratic ladder quickly. In 1986, he was appointed to the commanding officer of the Commodore's Messengers Org at FLAG which is in uh, Clearwater. In 2001, Miscavige called him, complaining, Tom, I can't get my building done. The new headquarters for the Religious Technology Center at Gold Base, Building 50, was years behind schedule and well over budget. Miscavige directed DeVoit to come to Gold Base and oversee the construction. The first day that he got there, DeVoit realized that this building is going to be the end of me. $47 million, more than $1,000 per square foot, had previously been spent on the new center. The building had already been completed a couple of times, using the highest grade materials, cold rolled steel, and anigre, a beautiful but extremely hard pinkish African wood, only to have components ripped out because they didn't meet Miscavige's standards. Miscavige's desk, also made of steel, was so heavy that DeVoit worried whether the structure would support it. He discovered that there were no actual architectural drawings for the building. There were only renderings of what it should look like. The stucco exterior walls were already cracked because the whole edifice was at a 1.25-inch tilt. 
The walls weren't actually connected to the floors. Even a minor earthquake, gold base was just to the west of the San Andreas Fault, might cause the whole building to collapse. <laughs> DeVoit recommended that the building be torn down and rebuilt from scratch, but Miscavige rejected that idea. The expense of essentially rebuilding a poorly constructed building from the inside was immense. When DeVoit had almost finished construction, having spent an additional $60 million, Miscavige still had a list of complaints. He was also critical of the landscaping. Gold Base is in a desert, but Miscavige demanded that the building appear to be set in a forest. I do know a little piece of that. I believe that at some point there was some need of a meadow for uh, TC and uh, his SO to run through. One morning, DeVoit says Miscavige and his wife were inspecting the large vault in the legal department of Building 50 when the le leader stopped in his tracks and began rubbing his head. He turned pale. Where did we put the gold bullion? He asked his wife. For a full minute, Miscavige kept rubbing his head and asking about the gold, but then he snapped out of it and went on as nothing happened. DeVoit recalls that 45 minutes later, Shelley Miscavige called him and asked him, what are we going to do? He's losing it. She told him that Dave had gone type 3 psychotic because of all the suppressive persons at the base. While DeVoit was working on Building 50, he was forced to attend a seance with 500 other Sea Org members on Gold Base. People were called out by name and asked, what crimes have you committed against David Miscavige? One after another, people approached the microphone and confessed to ways in which they were suppressing the dissemination of Scientology or thinking taboo thoughts. DeVoit was disgusted by the orgy of self-abasement. DeVoit was disgusted by the orgy of self-abasement. One night, he simply took over the meeting and brought some semblance of order to it. That night, Shelley Miscavige asked him to be the commanding officer of the Common Commodore's Messengers Org, which essentially put him in charge of the entire base. It's out of control, she pleaded, to her, which was a quote, saying that her husband counted on him and had no one else to turn to. In 2004, DeVoit finished reconstructing the 45,000 square foot building, 50, which wound up costing $70 million. You're the biggest spender in the history of Scientology, Miscavige told him. You should be shot. Even though membership in the church has been declining for years, according to polls and census figures, money continues to pour into Scientology's coffers in fantastic sums. Donors are accorded higher status depending on the size of their gifts in the International Association of Scientologists. Patron Maximus for a $25 million pledge, for instance. Nancy Cartwright, the voice of Bart Simpson, became a patron laureate for her $10 million gift to the association in 2007. The IAS now holds more than $1 billion, mostly in offshore accounts, according to the former executives of the church. Scientology coursework alone can be very pricey, with as much as $400,000 to reach the level of OT8. That doesn't count the books and materials or the latest model e-meter, which is priced at $4,650. Then there is the auditing, which ranges in price from $5,000 to $8,000 for a 12-hour intensive depending on the location and the level of the auditor. Services sold in Clearwater alone amount to $100 million a year. Despite the frequent cost overruns on construction, Scientology has undertaken a worldwide building campaign, kicked off by Miscavige's decision to use the occasion of 9-11 to issue a call for massive expansion of the church. Quote, Bluntly, we are the only people on Earth who can reverse the decline, he announced. The only way to do better is to get 
big. In some cases, the building projects have become significant moneymakers for the church. Across the street from Scientology's Fort Harrison Hotel in Clearwater is the Super Power Building, intended to be a training facility to enhance the perceptions of upper-level Thetans. The fundraising kicked off with a $1 million gift from the Feshbach Brothers. Despite years-long construction delays and fines imposed by the city of Clearwater, the 380,000-square-foot superpower building has proven to be a bonanza for the church, which has taken in at least $145 million in donations to complete the project, $120 million more than it was projected to cost when first proposed in 1993. The church explains that the plan has been enlarged from its original goals, which has created delays and additional expenses. Tom DeVoit, who worked on the construction for years, said that the building remained unfinished for so long because no one knew what superpower was. Hmm. Under Miscavige's leadership, the church was aggressively launched. Hmm. Under Miscavige's leadership, the church has aggressively launched a program called Ideal Orgs, which aimed to replicate the grandeur of Hubbard's St. Hill Manor. A number of ideal orgs have been shuttered, including Seattle, Boston, and New Haven, because of the local Scientology communities were unable to support them. Other notable churches and missions are now boarded up or unloaded, including one in Santa Monica that Paul and Deborah Haggis raised money to establish. The intensity of the pressure on Sea Org members to raise money for the church while working for next to nothing can be understood in part through the account of Daniel Montalavo. Mm, want to get it right. Daniel Montalvo. His parents joined the Sea Org when he was five, and the very next year he signed his own billion-year contract. That's at six. He says he began working full-time in the organization when he was 11 and recalls that. Along with other Sea Org members, including children, his days stretched from 8 in the morning until 11.30 at night. Part of his work was shoveling up asbestos that he had been removing during the renovation of the Fort Harrison Hotel. He says no protective gear was provided, not even a mask. He rarely saw his parents. While he was at Flag Base in 2005, when he was 14, he guarded the door while Tom Cruise was in session. The sight of children working at the Sea Org facility would not have been unusual. They were separated from their parents and out of school. According to Florida child labor laws, minors who are 14 and 15 years old are prohibited from working during school hours and may only work up to 15 hours per week. Daniel said that he was allowed schooling only one day per week and on Saturday. When Daniel was 15, he was assigned to work on the renovation of Scientology's publications building in Los Angeles, operating scissor lifts and other heavy equipment. At 15. Dope. According to California child labor laws, 15-year-old children are allowed to work only three hours per day outside of school except on weekends, no more than 18 hours per week total. 16 is the minimum age for children to work in any manufacturing establishment using power-driven hoisting apparatus such as the scissors lift. Daniel graduated to work at the church's auditing complex nearby called the American St. Hill Organization, then from 6 until the... Mm. Then from 6 in the evening until 3 in the morning. He volunteered at Bridge Publications. He was paid $36 a week. Daniel's work at Bridge Publications was sufficiently impressive that so sufficiently impressive that he was posted full-time in the manufacturing division there the following year. The church has issued a new edition of Hubbard's books and lectures called The Basics 
which was being aggressively marketed to Scientologists. One of Daniel's jobs was to cut the, quote, thumb notches that mark the glossary and the appendix in these handsomely made books, like the notches one would find in an unabridged dictionary. That makes sense. A machine with a guillotine... I'm going to restart this sentence. A machine with a guillotine... Steel blade slices through the pages to produce the half-moon indentation. California law specifically forbids the operation of the machine by anyone under the age of 18. Daniel noted about 20 other miners working at the plant, all of them sleep-deprived and working around heavy equipment. One night, Daniel chopped off his right index finger on the notching machine. One night, Daniel chopped off his right index finger on the notching machine. One night, Daniel chopped off his right index finger on the notching machine. A security officer picked up his finger and put it in a plastic bag with ice and took Daniel to the children's hospital in Hollywood. He was instructed to tell the admitting nurse that he had injured himself in a skateboarding accident. Oops, my finger. I fell off my skateboard. The doctors were unable to reattach his finger. After that, Daniel was sent to the sales division of Bridge Publications. Sales had been declining since The Basics had first been published in 2007. The Basics included 18 books and a number of Hubbard lectures on CD. The complete package cost $6,500. Sea Orgs all over the world had call centers set up to sell them. In Los Angeles, there were hourly quotas to be met, and those who failed suffered various punishments, such as having water dumped on their head, or being made to do push-ups, or run up and down the stairs. There were security guards on every floor. A salesperson had to give a slip, verifying that he had made his quota before there he was permitted to go to bed. Often, it was simply impossible to make the quota legitimately, so people ran unauthorized credit cards. Members of the Sea Org sales force would break into the church's financial records and pull up the credit card information of public members. Members who had money on account at the church for future courses would see it drained to pay for books they didn't order. Parishioners who balked at marketing contributions or buying unwanted materials were told they were in violation of church ethics, and their progress in Scientology was blocked or threatened. Members who pledge more than they can afford can find themselves in a compromised situation. One Scientologist, who is a bank teller, says that he was told to comply with a robbery in order to pay off his debt to the church. The robbers took $4,000. In 2009, Nancy Cart writes, <sighs> Hold on. Members who pledge more than they can afford can find themselves in a compromised situation. One Scientologist, who was a bank teller, says he was told to comply with a robbery in order to pay off his debt to the church. The robbers took $4,000. In 2009, Nancy Cartwright's fiancé, Stephen E. Brackett, a contractor, had taken a substantial construction advance to renovate a restaurant. The company that insured the project later sued Cartwright, claiming that she and Brackett had diverted the money to the Church of Scientology. Bracket and OT5 had been featured in a church ad for the superpower building identified as a, quote, key contributor. Quote, mankind needs your help. Bracket was quoted as saying in the ad. He later took his life by jumping off a bridge on Pacific Coast Highway near Big Sur. 
The case against Cartwright was settled out of court. The biggest financial scandal involving church members was a Ponzi scheme operated by Reed Slatkin. He was one of the co-founders with Paul Haggis's friend, Sky Dayton, of Earthlink. Slatkin's massive fraud involved more than half a billion dollars in investments. Much of the initial profit was returned to Scientology investors, such as Daniel and Myrna Jacobs, who earned nearly $3 million on a $760,500, quote, investment. According to Marty Rathburn, Slatkin's Scientology... According to Marty Rathburn, Slatkin's Scientology investors included Ann Archer and Fox News commentator Greta Van Susteren. Later investors were not so lucky. Slatkin was convicted of defrauding $240 million. It is still not known how much of that money went directly to the church, although the court found about $50 million was funneled to the church indirectly by the investors with massive gains. In 2006, groups affiliated with the Church of Scientology, including the Celebrity Center, agreed to pay back 3.5 mil. So 3.5 of the potential 240 mil seems like I uh, got a good deal there. What is that, 1.1%? In July of 2004, Miscouch hosted Tom Cruise's 42nd birthday party aboard the Scientology cruise ship Free Winds. The golden era musicians, including Miscavige's father on trumpet, played songs from Cruz's movies as film clips flickered on the giant overhead screens installed especially for the occasion. Cruz himself danced and sang old-time rock and roll, reprising a famous scene in Risky Business, the movie that firmly established him as a star. Occasionally, the free winds is used to confine those Sea Org members that the church considers most at risk for flight. Among the crew on the ship during Cruz's birthday party was Valeska Paris, a 26-year-old Swiss woman. Paris had grown up in Scientology and joined the Sea Org when she was 14. Three years later, her stepfather, a self-made millionaire, committed suicide, leaving a diary in which he blamed the church for fleecing his fortune. When Valeska's mother denounced the church on French television, Valeska was isolated at the Clearwater base in order to keep her away from her mother. The next year, at the age of 18, she was sent to the Free Winds. She was told she would be on the ship for two weeks. She was held there against her will for 12 years. Shortly before Cruz arrived, Paris developed a cold sore, which caused Miscavige to consign her to a condition of treason, so she wasn't allowed to go to the birthday party, but she later did wind up serving Cruz and his girlfriend, at the time, the Spanish Spanish actress Penelope Cruz. In October, Miscavige acknowledged Cruz's place in Scientology by awarding him the Freedom Medal of Valor. Miscavige called Cruz the most dedicated Scientologist I know before an audience of Sea Org members who had spent much of their lives working for the church for a little more than $7 a day. Then, he hung the diamond-encrusted platinum medallion around the star's neck. I think you know that I am here for you, Cruz said to the thrilled audience, and I do care so very, very, very much. He turned to an opposing portrait of Hubbard, standing beside a globe. To LRH, he said with a crisp salute. Lena Mitchell, the cook who had been accused of feeding Cruz the poisoned shrimp a few months before, had gotten out of Happy Valley, but she watched the ceremony while in RPF, along with some 200 of her detained colleagues. Remember, RPF is basically like Scientology jail. About 50 of them were Sea Org executives who had been purged by Miscavige. They were being held in the Los Angeles complex on L.R.H. Way, L. Ron Hubbard Way. 
in the massive blue former hospital where Spanky Taylor and so many others had been confined. Get into that later. Some had been in the organization for more than 20 years and had worked directly for Hubbard. They were completely cut off from the outside world, no television, radio, or even any music. As many as 40 people were crammed into each of the former hospital rooms with only one bathroom to share. Often there was not enough food to go around. Some of those confined had severe medical conditions, including Uwe Stuckenbrock, the former international security chief who suffered from multiple sclerosis and had deteriorated to the point of being unable to speak. One of the jobs Mitchell was assigned in RPF was welding, but she had never done it before, and she burned her eyes because she wasn't wearing protective glasses correctly. She got no medical attention at all. Every effort was made to keep RPFers out of view. Windows were curtained so that no one could see in or out. They traveled through tunnels and over rooftops when they needed to move about within their complex. There were no days off, although they were allowed to call their families on Christmas. Their sole diversion was watching the big Scientology galas on television. After all, the elaborate sets for these events were constructed by the RPFers in Los Angeles or at Flag Base in Clearwater. To view the big cruise event, they were all taken to the mess hall. One of the penitents was Mark McKinnistry, who had been the national sales manager at Bridge Publications when the movie version of Battlefield Earth, starring John DeVolta, came out in 2000. Hubbard's Tale is about an alien race of, quote, psycho, cyclos, P-S-Y-C-H-L-O-S, who have been turned... Mm, who had turned people into slaves until a hero arises to liberate humanity. Travolta had worked for years to get the movie made and wound up paying a significant portion out of his own pocket, which is the number one rule of Hollywood to not do that. It was the peak of his career. I told my manager, he said, if we can't do things right now that we want to do, then what good is the power? He remarked at the time. Miscavige had been deeply involved in the filming from the beginning. He would watch dailies of the film in Clearwater while he was overseeing the handling of the Lisa McPherson case. His critiques would then be typed up and sent to the Scientology representative who was always at Travolta's side. Reminds me of Mission Impossible. When the movie was completed, Miscavige told Travolta to congratulate him, saying LRH would be proud. He predicted it was going to be a blockbuster. McKinstry had been working for a year promoting the movie edition of the book. He traveled across the country with Travolta to push the book in bookstores, malls, and Walmarts. About 750,000 copies were sold. Like many others who have spent time with Travolta, McKinstry came to like him immensely. The actor was devoting a substantial amount of his own time and energy to making the book a, a success, but when the movie came out, it was a critical and box office catastrophe. Even at the premiere, Sea Org members had to be bussed in to Mann's Chinese Theater in Hollywood Boulevard to fill the empty seats for as many as three shows a day. For some of them, it was the first movie they had seen in years. Battlefield Earth may well turn out to be the worst movie of the century, the New York Times critic observed, in what proved to be a typical review. There were false accusations that the film contained subliminal messages promoting Scientology. Travolta's career went to a lengthy dark period. Cruz later complained to Miscavige, saying that the movie was terrible for the church's public image. Cruz's attorney notes, Mr. Cruz has never expressed anything but support and respect for the work on Battlefield Earth. Miscavige responded that it never would have been made if he had anything to do with it. Interesting. McKinstry was dismayed when he went to a screening of the movie and watched people walking out or booing. 
His wife could see that he was upset and asked what was wrong. Why didn't anyone want to watch this movie before it was released? He said. She reported to the church what he had said, and he was ordered to the RPF. Shortly before he received Scientology's top award, Cruz entered his three-year relationship with Penelope Cruz. Shelley Miscavige had been supervising her auditing and helping her through the purification rundown. But, like Nicole, Penelope was suspect in the eyes of the church's leader. She was an independently-minded person and continued to meditate and identify herself as a Buddhist. Cruz traveled with a Scientology delegation to open a magnificent new church in Madrid, where he had read his speech to the crowd in halting Spanish. Before the opening, however, he was sitting with his sister Leanne, who had become his publicist. Mike Rinder, who was in the room, remembers that Cruz heatedly complained to his sister that no one had been able to find him a new girlfriend. Miscavige walked in, Rinder says, and Cruz made the same complaint to him. Cruz's attorney says that Cruz did not complain about him having a girlfriend at the opening of the church in Madrid. Miscavige took the hint. I want you to look for the prettiest woman in the church, Tom the Boy remembers Miscavige saying. Get their names and phone numbers, Miscavige then assigned Greg Wilhere and Tommy Davis to audition all the young actresses who were in Scientology, about 100 according to Mark Headley, who observed some of the videos. Shelley Miscavige, the leader's wife, oversaw the project personally. Wilhere and Davis immediately went to work. The women weren't told why they were being interviewed, but they were asked about the opinions of Cruz and where they were on the bridge. This is the super long chart from... Uh, basic yokel in their world to OT8 and above. All the fun stuff. Will here, who was actually in the hole at the time, was taken out of confinement and given a Blackberry and $5,000 to buy civilian clothes at a Saks Fifth Avenue outlet and then sent to New York and Los Angeles to videotape the interviews. Rinder noticed that when Cruz arrived at the Freedom Medal of Valor ceremony a month later, he was accompanied by a raven-haired young actress and model, Yolanda Pecorano. She was born into Scientology and had completed a number of courses at the Celebrity Center and on the Free Winds. But she was only 19 years old. Cruz was 42 at the time. The Scientology team came up with another aspiring actress, Nazanin Boniati. Nazanin Boniati, that's it. 25 years old, who had been born in Iran and raised in London. Nas was well-educated and beautiful in the way that Cruz was inclined to respond to, dark and slender with large eyes and a flashing smile. She had studied pre-med at the University of California at Irvine before deciding to try her luck as an actress. More important for the purposes of the match, however, was the fact that Boniati was an OT5. Her mother was also a Scientologist. In early November 2004, Nas was informed that she had been selected for a special program that was critical to the future of the church, but it was so secret she wouldn't be allowed to tell anyone, even her mother. Nas was moved immediately into the Celebrity Center, where she spent a month going through security checks and special auditing programs. She hoped the project had something to do with human rights, which was her special interest, but all she was told was that her participation would end bigotry against Scientology. At one point during the intensive auditing and security checks, Will here informed her that she would have to break up with her longtime boyfriend in order to, for the project to proceed. She refused. She couldn't understand why her boyfriend posed any kind of problem. Indeed, she had personally introduced him to Scientology. 
Will Hare persisted, asking what it would take for her to break off the romance. Flustered, she responded that she would break up with him if she knew that he had been cheating on her. According to Naz's friends, the very next day, Will Hare brought in her boyfriend's confidential auditing files and showed her several instances of his infidelities, which had been circled in red. Nas felt betrayed, but also guilty because Will Hare blamed her for failing to know and report her boyfriend's ethical lapses herself. After all, she had audited him on several occasions. Obviously, she had missed this. Mm. Obviously, she had missed his withhold. Scientology term for withholding. She confronted her boyfriend and he confessed. That was the end of their relationship. The church has stated Scientology ministers and maintains a practice of, and code of conduct known as the Auditor's Code. The Auditor's Code provides a standard to ensure that priest-pentent communications remain strictly confidential. All such information is kept strictly confidential by a Scientology minister and the church. Another time, Nas was asked what her ideal scene for 2D, in other words, her dream date, would be. It was eating sushi and going ice skating, but she wondered why that was important. One of her assignments was to study a bulletin of Hubbard's titled The Responsibilities of Leaders. It is Hubbard's deconstruction of the lives of the 19th century South American military leader Simon Bolivar and his ferociously protective mistress, a socialite named Manuela Sanz. Bolivar, Hubbard writes, was a military commander without peer in history. Why would he fall uh, why would he fail and die in exile? To be later be defied is thus of great interest. What mistakes did he make? Sands, his consort, quote, was a brilliant, beautiful, and able woman. She was, at, uh, was loyal, devoted, quite comparable to Bolivar, far above the cut of average humanoids. Why then did she live a vilified outcast, receive such violent social rejection, and die of poverty and remain unknown to history? What mistakes did she make? Hubbard's analysis was that Bolivar knew how to do one thing brilliantly, to lead men in battle. And therefore he tended to resort to military solutions to lead men in battle, when diplomacy or politics would better serve. He was too good at this one thing, Hubbard observes, so he never looked to any other skill, and he never even dreamed there was any other way. Bolivar failed to use his immense authority to reward his friends and punish his enemies, and thus his friends deserted him and his enemies grew stronger. Craving glory and the love of his people, Bolivar disdained the bloody intrigues that might have kept him in power. Quote, he never began to recognize a suppressive and never considered anyone needed killing except on a battlefield. Hubbard coldly sums up. His addiction to the most unstable drug in history, fame, killed Bolivar. Manuela Sands might have saved him. She had qualities that he lacked, but she, too, made mistakes. For all her cleverness, she never contrived to make Bolivar marry her, which would have given her the standing that she badly needed. Quote, she was utter utterly devoted, completely brilliant, and utterly incapable of bringing off an action of any final kind, Hubbard notes. Quote, she violated the power formula in not realizing that she had power. End quote. She would have taken on the portfolio of Bolivar's secret police chief, as Mary Sue did for Hubbard. 
She was not ruthless enough to make up for his lack of ruthlessness, and not provident enough to make up for his lack of providence, Hubbard writes. She was an actress for the theater alone. In Hubbard's view, the moral of Bolivar and Sainz's tragedy is that those with powers must use it. Someone close to power, like Manuela, has to dedicate herself to enlarging the strength of her partner. Real powers are developed by tight conspiracies of this kind, Hubbard writes. If Manuela had been willing to support Bolivar completely, Hubbard concludes, she would have been a truly historic figure rather than a being unknown even to the archives of her country as the fine heroine she was. Nazanin Boniati was obviously being groomed for leadership. Why else would she be reading about Bolivar and Sands? But what lesson was she supposed to draw? She was puzzled by the demands the church was placing on her, which had little to do with human rights. Along with security checks and the coursework, Naz was told to leave her, have her braces taken off and was given very expensive beauty treatments. Will here informed her that the director of the special project had decided that her hair had too much red in it, and so a stylist to the stars came to the celebrity center to darken and highlight her hair. Then came the shopping spree. Will here took Nas to Rodeo Drive and spent $20,000 for her new wardrobe. Finally, Nas and Will here flew to New York, first class. She guessed that the mission would finally be revealed to her. They stopped at the New York org, ostensibly en route, uh, on routine business. But there they happened to run into TC, Tom Cruise. Tommy Davis was with him, and although it seemed like a happy coincidence, Nas was a little flustered. Not only was Tom Cruise the biggest star in the world, he had also just been accorded the highest honor in Scientology. She said to him, Very well done, sir. Later, she was corrected for saying that because you don't commend your senior. Okay. Cruise was charming. He said that he and Davis were headed over to the Empire State Building and then to Nobu for some sushi. Why didn't they join them? Afterward, they all went skating at Rockefeller Center, which was closed to the public while they were on the rink. It was beginning to seem a little too perfect. She spent the first night with Cruz in Trump Tower, where he had taken an entire floor for his entourage. Cruz invited Naz to hang out on the set of War of the Worlds, which was shooting in Athens, New York, the next morning. At the end of the day, Davis accompanied her back to the city. In the limo, he handed Naz a non-disclosure agreement. There was no lawyer present, and she wasn't given a copy of what she signed. He informed her that the, quote, mission was now off the table. This, the relationship with Cruz, was far more important. Davis warned her that if she did anything to upset Cruz, that he would personally destroy her. Nas wasn't resistant. She wanted to help the world, and she had faith that Scientology could do that. Cruz was dazzling. Scientology was deeply important to both of them. It was obviously meant to be, so why question it? According to several knowledgeable sources, within a few weeks, Nas moved into Cruz's house. Davis and Jessica Felschback were constantly tutoring her on how to behave toward the star. One evening, she and Cruz had dinner with several Scientologists, including Tommy Davis and Cruz's niece, Lauren Hagney, who was in the Sea Org and was posted to Gold Base. She had been Katie Haggis' best friend all throughout their childhood. They were at the Delphian school together. At the dinner, Lauren talked about her friendship with Katie and how she had decided to break off the relationship when Katie said she was a lesbian. Naz was shocked, not just by the comment, but by the fact that everyone agreed with her decision. Cruz's attorney says that his conversation never took place. According to Tommy Davis, Katie did not lose her friend because she admitted she was gay. She lost her friend because Katie lied to her about being gay. 
In December, Cruz took Nas to his vacation home in Telluride, where they were joined by David and Shelley Miscavige. While they were at Cruz's retreat, David and Shelley watched a screener of Million Dollar Baby. Afterward, Miscavige said that it had been difficult to sit through. He complained about what a poor example of a Scientologist Haggis was, and that he needed to get back on the bridge and stop making such awful, low-tone films. Cruz agreed. He needed to get his ethics in, he remarked. Nas was having an awful menstrual period, and she wanted to beg off the festive dinner they had planned, but she knew she was obliged to play the hostess. Still, she felt miserable and her mind foggy. A couple times, Miscavige addressed comments to her, and she couldn't quite understand what he said. Miscavige speaks in rapid-fire Philly brogue, and Nas had to ask him to repeat himself more than once. The next day, both Davis and Cruz dressed her down for disrespecting the church leader, specifically for, quote, insulting his TR1. In Scientology lingo, that refers to basic training routine about communicating with another person. Nas had embarrassed Miscavige because he wasn't able to get his message across. Davis said that her conduct was inexcusable. If she was in pain, she should have taken a Tylenol. Wow. a.m. With this characteristic intensity, Cruz himself later explained the seriousness of the situation. You don't get it. It goes like this. He raised his hand over his head. First, there's LRH. He moved his hand down a few inches. Then there's COB, bringing his hand down to his own eye level, and said, then there's me. Two weeks later, Jessica Feshback told Nas to pick her things. Cruz was too busy to say goodbye. Nas's last glimpse was of him working out in his home gym. Davis later explained to her that Cruz had simply changed his mind about the relationship, deciding that he needed someone with more power, but the star was willing to make amends for paying for a package that would allow her to attain OT8. Continuing up the bridge would help her deal with her grief and loss, Davis assured her. In February 2005, Nas went to Clearwater to take the courses. At first, she was treated like a VIP, but soon one of her friends noticed dramatic changes in her. She was weeping all the time. Nas confided that she had just gone through a wrenching breakup with Tom Cruise. The shocked friend immediately reported her to ethics. Nas was assigned a condition of treason in order to do reparations for the damages she had done to the group by revealing her relationship with Cruise. She was made to dig ditches and scrub public toilets with a toothbrush. She was made to dig ditches and scrub public toilets with a toothbrush as retribution for revealing the fact that the church themselves had organized a relationship with her and Tom Cruise um, originally without her knowledge. Um, finally, in June, she worked her way back into good standing with the church, but she was ordered to stay away from the celebrity center. Davis advised her to go live in some far corner of the world and never utter another word about Tom Cruise. Several sources independently told me of Tom uh, of uh, Boniati's experiences with Tom Cruise. All their recollections are consistent. Cruise's attorney said that no Scientology executive set him up with the girlfriends and that no female Scientologist that Cruise dated ever moved into his home. The search for a new mate for the co-star now went beyond Scientologists. Cruz briefly courted the Colombian actress Sofia Vergara, whom he met at a, po- a pre-Oscar party hosted by Will and Jada Pinkett Smith, 
but that relationship dissolved when Vergara refused to become a Scientologist. The relationship... The religion was a crucial factor, both for Cruz and for the church. Cruz was particularly interested in Jennifer Garner. Other actresses were invited to the Celebrity Center to audition for what they believed was a role in the Mission Impossible series. The names included Kate Bosworth, Jessica Alba, Lindsay Lohan, Scarlett Johansson, and Katie Holmes. Holmes was an ingenue. Excuse me. Holmes was an ingenue with an almond-shaped brown eyes who described herself as a 26-year-old virgin. She had been a top student at an all-girls Catholic school in Toledo, Ohio, but like Tommy Davis, she had dropped out of Columbia University after a single semester. Soon, she was starring on the teenage soap opera Dawson's Creek and had a modest film career in coquettish roles. Church researchers discovered an interview she had given to Seventeen in October 2004. I think every young girl dreams about her wedding, Holmes told the magazine. I used to think I was going to marry Tom Cruise. She developed a crush on the actor when he appeared in Risky Business. At the time, she was four years old. Katie and Tom met in April 2005. I was in love from the moment that I took... I was in love from the moment that I shook his hand for the first time. She later told talk show host Jay Leno, Cruz is famous for his ardent courtship, flowers, jewelry, and imaginative dates. He took Katie on a nighttime helicopter ride over Los Angeles with takeout sushi. Within a little more than two weeks, she had moved into Cruz's Beverly Hills mansion, fired her manager and agent, and replaced him with his representatives, and had begun to be accompanied by Jessica Feshback, who explained in press interviews as being, who was explained in press interviews as being her, quote, best friend. In May, Cruz appeared on The Oprah Winfrey Show. The audience, nearly all women, were in a near-hysterical state of anticipation but even before Cruz came out on the stage, so his behavior has to be seen against a backdrop of highly titillated screaming mass, to which he responded to like a surfer catching a massive wave. He pumped his fist in the air and knelt on the floor. Something's happened to you, Winfrey's exclaimed. I'm in love, he explained. We've never seen you behave like this before. I know, Cruz said, jumping backward onto her couch, then grabbed Winfrey's hands and began wrestling with her. You're gone, she kept saying. You're gone. It was a scene of complete delirium. Cruz's spectacular and highly public romance was overshadowing the promotion for War of the Worlds, the movie that had just ma- he had just made with Spielberg, which would be released the following month. A few weeks after the Winfrey show, Cruz did an interview with Today Show host Matt Lauer, as Holmes sat nearby. The questions were friendly, and Cruz seemed happy and relaxed until Lauer mentioned that Holmes had agreed to take up Scientology. At this stage in your life, could you be with someone who doesn't have an interest? Lauer asked. You know, Scientology is something that you don't understand, Cruz responded. It's like you could be a Christian and a Scientologist, okay? So it doesn't replace religion, Lauer offered. It is a religion because it's dealing with the spirit, you is a spiritual being. Lauer then asked about a comment that Cruz had recently made about actress Brooke Shields, who had written that antidepressants had helped her get through a postpartum depression. I've never agreed with psychiatry, ever, Cruz said. 
He was dressed in black and his muscular arms on display. He had a stubble beard and his hair was draped in bangs across his forehead. He radiated an athletic intensity and barely contained fury. As far as the Brooke Shields thing, look, you've got to understand, I really care about Brooke Shields. I think here's a wonderful and talented woman. All I want to see is her to do well. And I know psychiatry is a pseudoscience. But Tom, if she said this one particular thing helped her feel better, then what was the antidepressants or uh, going to going to a counselor or a psychiatrist isn't that enough matt you have to understand this cruz said glowering here we are today i talk about i talk out against drugs and psychiatric mm. i'm gonna address matt lauer matt you have to understand this here we are today where i talk out about drugs and psychiatric abuses and electric shocking people okay uh, against their will of drugging children, with them not knowing the effect of these drugs. Do you know what Adderall is? Do you know what Ritalin is? Do you know what that Ritalin drug? <laughs> Can't even do it. Do you know that Ritalin is a street drug? <laughs> do you understand that? The difference is, no, no, Matt. This wasn't against her will, though. Matt, 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 Matt. This wasn't against her will. Matt, I'm asking you a question. I understand there's abuse of all these things. No, you see, here's the problem, Cruz said. You don't know the history of psychiatry. I do. Lauer was taken aback by the <laughs> by Cruz's aggressiveness, but he pressed on. Do you examine the possibility that these things do work for some people? Then yes, there are abuses. And yes, maybe they've gone too far in some areas. Maybe there are too many kids on Ritalin. Maybe electric shock. Too many kids on Ritalin, Cruz said, shaking his head. Matt, aren't these examples where it works? Matt, 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 you don't even get your glib. You don't even know what Ritalin is. He said there were ways that Shields could solve her depression and mentioned diet and exercise other than drugs. Quote, And there are ways of doing it without that. So we don't end up in a brave new world. The thing I'm saying about Brooke is that there's misinformation, okay? And she doesn't understand the history of psychiatry. And she doesn't understand it the same way. You don't understand Matt. Matt, 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 Matt. Scientology's history of psychiatry holds it responsible for many of the ills that has affected humanity. War, racism, ethic, cleansing, terrorism, all in the pursuit of social control and profit. The church has opened an exhibit, Psychiatry and Industry of Death, on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. It describes the often grisly and benighted processes that have characterized the evolution of the profession, including madhouses, lobotomies, electroshock therapy, and the proliferation of psychiatric drugs to sp treat spurious diagnoses. Scientologists view history as a long march by, by psychiatrists to manipulate human behavior and institute world government. Although it's not included in the exhibit, Hubbard's chronology of psychiatry actually begins five billion years ago with the development of a particular technique that was developed in the Maw Confederation of the 63rd Galaxy. Let me paint a picture for you. Take a sheet of glass and put it in front of the pre-clear. Clear. Very clear, clear glass, which is super cool, preferably about a 100 uh, centigrade. You get that? Super cool, you know? And put the pre-clear right in front of the super cooled sheet of glass and then suddenly shove his face into the glass. Takes about 20 seconds then to accomplish a total brainwash of a case. Now, if you're to play God, the whole track psychiatrist did at the time, all you have to do at the time is, of course, go to Earth and be present or something like that, you know? And... As a thetan, being properly brainwashed now will take off. And that's that. 
Hubbard also blamed psychiatrists allied with the tyrant Xenu for carrying out genocide in the Galactic Confederacy 75 million years ago. There are obvious parallels in this legend with the Nazi regime, which used doctors, including psychiatrists, to carry out the extermination of the mentally ill, along with homosexuals, gypsies, and Jews, and also by the Soviet government, which employed psychiatrists to diagnose political dissidents and lock them away. Hubbard lived through these shameful events, and they no doubt colored his imagination. After Hubbard's death, Miscavige continued the campaign. In 1975, he told the International Association of Scientologists that the Church's goals for the new millennium were to place Scientology at the absolute center of society and to, quote, eliminate psychiatry in all its forms, end quote. The Citizens' Commission on Human Rights is a lobby created by the Church of Scientology that runs the science. Psychiatry Museum, maintains that no mental diseases have ever been proven to exist as well. <laughs> No mental diseases have ever been proven to exist. End of statement. In this view, psychiatrists have been responsible for the Holocaust, apartheid, and even 9-11. The commission is not above bending to the truth to make its point. Oh, bending the truth. Yep, that's obviously what it said. Oh, listen to that. The president of CCHR, Dave Figueroa, asserts that Osama bin Laden's chief deputy, Ayman al-Zahiri, was a psychiatrist who took control of bin Laden's, quote, thought patterns. Whatever type of drugs that Zawahiri used to make that change in bin Laden, we don't know, Figueroa explained. We know that there was a real change in that guy's attitude. This view is reiterated in the terrorism portion of the museum. In fact, Zawahiri is a general surgeon and not a psychiatrist. Also in the exhibit is a photograph of... Imad Eden Bakrat Yarkas, also known as Abu Darda, who is described as a psychiatrist and the mastermind of the Madrid train bombings in 2004. Yarkas, an Al-Qaeda fundraiser, was a used car salesman who had little or nothing to do with the Madrid bombings. On a list of 218 international known Islamist militants, only the only one who ever studied psychology was Ali Muhammad, an Egyptian operative who helped plan the American embassy bombings in 1998. Psychologists are conspicuous... Hmm. Psychologists are conspicuous by their absence. Stefan Hertog, a lecturer on comparative politics at the London School of Economics, wrote me in a private communication. The pattern is similar for other types of extremist groups. Among 215 leading German Nazis with known higher education, there are only two psychologists compared to 71 lawyers. In another Citizens' Common on Human Rights report titled Chaos and Terror Manufactured by Psychiatry, www.cchrstl.org slash documents slash terror.pdf That supposed mastermind of the Madrid bombings is now said to be the Moroccan psychiatrist Abu Hafzi Hafiza. No such person exists on the known list of Islamist terrorists nor is anyone by that name attached to the Madrid bombings. Scientology just making some terrorists up to say that psychology caused 9-11 which you know sure I guess I mean psychology makes everything happen basically CCHR's main effort has been an international campaign against the use of psychiatric drugs, especially for children. The Surgeon General of the United States issued a report in 2001 claiming that more than 20% of children ages 9 to 17 had a diagnosable mental or 
addictive disorder, and that 4 million American children suffered from major mental illness. There is obviously an immense market for medications to treat such disorders. About 10% of Americans over the age of 6 are on antidepressants and antipsychotic drugs are the top-selling category of drugs in the country. They have become a plague on the school grounds of America with indiscriminate prescriptions creating a new culture of drug dependency, one that the pharmaceutical industry and the medical profession bear some responsibility for. Haggis has been a substantial supporter of the CCHR. As a boy, he says he spent most of his days staring out the window, daydreaming, a candidate for an attention deficit disorder diagnosis. I identified with the oddballs and the misfits, he said. Those who conform have very little chance of making a difference in life. He was sure that if his parents had medicated him, they might never, he might never have become a writer. He hosted fundraisers for CCHR in his home. I simply believe that psychiatric drugs are overprescribed, over especially to children, he said. I think that is a crime. Scientologists have been seeking ways of criminalizing psychiatric remedies. In the same period that Cruz was chastising Brooke Shields for taking antidepressants, Kirstie Alley and Kelly Preston were testifying before state lawmakers in Florida who passed a bill written in part by Scientologists that would hold school teachers criminally liable for suggesting to parents that their children might be suffering from a mental health condition such as attention deficit disorder. Governor Jeb Bush vetoed the bill. Governor John Huntsman did the same in Utah. Similar bills have been pushed by CCHR in other states. In her Florida testimony, Christy Alley held up photographs of children who had committed suicide after taking psychotropic drugs. None of these children were psychotic before they took these drugs, she asserted, sobbing so hard she could barely speak. None of these children were suicidal before they took these drugs. Some drug makers have covered up studies that indicate an in increased danger of suicidal or violent thoughts caused by psychotropic medica uh, medicines. Eli Lilly, for instance, suppressed data showing that patients who were taking the popular drug Prozac, the only antidepressants certified as safe for children, were 12 times more likely to attempt suicide than patients taking similar medications. Antidepressants have been implicated in a number of schoolyard shootings, such as the 1999 Columbine High School Massacre, where two students killed 12 of their classmates and a teacher. One of the killers was taking Luvox at the time. Adderall, one of the drugs cited by Cruz, is an amphetamine often prescribed for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. It, is sometimes causes, it sometimes causes increased aggression in children and adolescents. Ritalin, the most common drug prescribed for ADHD, is similar to cocaine in its potential for addiction. According to the primary care companion to the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry, a person taking Ritalin, Adderall, or other cocaine-like drugs can, quote, experience nervousness, restlessness, agitation, suspiciousness, paranoia, hallucinations, and delusions, impaired cognitive functions, delirium, violence, suicide, and homicide. But people who are taking antidepressants, antipsychotics, and mood-stabilizing drugs are already at higher risk for suicide or violent behavior. One of the dangers of prescribing antidepressant is that it may give the patient the stimulus he or she needs to act on suicidal impulses that are already present. Sudden withdrawal from antidepressants can prompt suicidal thoughts as well. Several studies have found that the risk of suicide was just as great for those who don't receive antidepressants as for those who do over time. However, patients taking antidepressants are less likely to kill themselves. Such medications now come with warnings about increased suicidal behavior, and yet one study noted that the steady decline of overall suicide rates in the United States since fluoxetine, Prozac, was introduced in the American market. Uh, oh, was introduced in the American market. 
The authors estimated that the drug was responsible for saving 33,600 lives between 1988 and 2002. There are numerous examples of Scientologists who have considered or actually committed suicide or engaged in violence who might have been helped if they had taken psychotropic medicines. In Buffalo, New York, on March 13, 2003, L. Ron Hubbard's birthday, 28-year-old Jeremy Parkins stabbed his mother 27 times. He was a schizophrenic with a history of violence and hallucinations who had rejected psychiatric treatment because he was a Scientologist. Hannah Eltringham, who had been Hubbard's chief deputy, believes that Scientology itself caused her own shattered mental state. For years after attaining OT3, Eltringham had frequent thoughts of suicide. The unremitting migraines and voices in her head had made her despair. Several times she came close to jumping off the top floor of the church's headquarters in Clearwater, but restrained herself because she was worried that it would bring disgrace upon the church and Hubbard's teachings. It was only then when she left the church and began taking Prozac, that her headaches and her suicidal thoughts went away. It has changed my life, she claimed. My friend Mary Florence Barnett, Shelley Miscavige's mother, had similar symptoms, constant headaches and suicidal thoughts. She confided to Eldringham that he had wanted that she had wanted to kill herself in order to stop the suppressive body thetans from taking over her own mind. Barnett eventually went outside the official church to retreat to receive Scientology counseling, a heretical practice known in Scientology as squirreling, essentially deprogramming therapy. The church denies that Barnett had become involved with dissident Scientologists, but if she had, she would be placed, she would have placed David and Shelley Miscavige in a compromised position with the church. They would have been potential trouble sources, PTS, if they failed to disconnect from her. On September 8, 1985, Barnett's body was found. She had been shot three times in the chest and one through the temple with a rifle. Both of her wrists were slashed. She left two suicide notes. The Los Angeles County Medical Examiner ruled her death a suicide. On September 8, 1985, Barnett's body was found. She had been shot three times in the chest and once through the temple with a rifle. Both of her wrists were slashed. She had left two suicide notes. The Los Angeles County Medical Examiner ruled her death a suicide. You can roll that back a couple more times if you want. In 2007, Kyle Brennan, 20 years old, who is not a Scientologist, went to stay with his father, a member of the church in Clearwater. Brennan was taking Lexapro, an antidepressant heavily promoted by its manufacturer, Forest Laboratories. He was also under the care of a psychiatrist, according to court records. Brennan's father, Thomas, was ordered to handle his son. Thomas Brennan's auditor was Denise Miscavige Gentile, David Miscavige's twin sister. She spoke on the phone to Kyle's mother, who is not a Scientologist, and urged her to enroll her son in Narconon, the church's drug treatment program. His mother refused, pointing out that the program cost approximately $25,000. Moreover, Kyle was not a drug addict. She sued, charging that church officials had ordered Thomas Brennan to lock his son's Lexapro in the trunk of his car. Days after that, Kyle shot himself to death with a 357 Magnum that his father kept in his bedside table. The suit was dismissed for lack of evidence. The long history of humanity's inadequate attempts to deal with depression and the manifold ways in which insanity expresses itself has never yielded a clear path. Tragedies such as the suicide of Kyle Brennan demonstrate the danger of dogmatic interpretations of psychiatry, such as those offered by Tom Cruise and other Scientology celebrities on the subject. The American Psychiatric Association felt so threatened by Cruise's statements that the Today Show 
on the Today Show that the president of the organization issued a statement affirming that mental illnesses are real medical conditions. It is responsible, excuse me, quote, it is irresponsible for Mr. Cruz to use his movie publicity tour to promote his own ideological views and deter people with mental illnesses from getting the care they need, said Stephen S. Scharfstein, the president of the APA. But at, 2005, at the 2005 annual meeting of the International Association of Scientologists, Mike Rinder, who'd been let out of the hole for the occasion, who is now on the side of good and all that is well, credited Cruz with persuading the Food and Drug Administration to, hmm, to post suicide warnings on the label of two psychiatric drugs within days of his interview with Lauer. If someone wants to get off drugs, I can help them, Cruz told the German magazine Der Spiegel in April 2005. I myself have helped hundreds of people get off drugs. Haggis had sent a rough cut of his movie Crash to the Toronto Film Festival, an important venue for independent films that are looking for distribution. In September 2004, the movie met its first audience at the Elgin Theater, an elegant old vaudeville house downtown not far from the spot where Paul sold tickets to at the soft porn theater his professor used to run. As he watched the movie, Haggis was appalled. Everything that was wrong was glaringly apparent on the huge screen. He sat glumly waiting for it to end, calculating what could be salvaged, so that when the audience rose to its feet at the end, cheering, Haggis couldn't believe what was happening. Lionsgate Films bought Crash for $3.5 million and scheduled it for release the following spring. Crash opened quietly in April 2005. There were no billboards or bus signs, which were already touting the arrival of War of the Worlds in June. The reviews for Crash were passionate but polarized. Roger Ebert gave it four stars, calling it a movie of intense fascination. A.O. Scott, who reviewed it for the New York Times, called it uh, was less infatuated. It was a, quote, frustrating movie, he wrote, full of heart and devoid of life, crudely manipulative for when it tries its hardest to be subtle and profoundly complacent in spite of its intention to unsettle and disturb. There was no actual premiere, just a screaming at the Academy Theater on Wilshire Boulevard, and no grand party afterward. Haggis and his family went out to dinner. Despite the conflicting reviews and limited distribution, a groundswell was building for the movie, entirely driven by audiences who were caught up in the national conversation over race and class <laughs> that the movie prompted, which you may remember, maybe not. It would go on to earn nearly $100 million in international sales. Million Dollar Baby had just won the Academy Award for Best Picture that February, and Haggis was writing a James Bond movie, Casino Royale, in addition to the Eastwood picture, Flags of Our Fathers. He was flying. Tom Cruise's career was headed in the opposite direction. Haggis had seen him at the Vanity Fair Opera, mm, the Vanity Fair Oscar party. Cruise and Tommy Davis arrived on Ducati motorcycles, wearing black jackets, and were led in the back door of Morton's Steakhouse in Beverly Hills. <laughs> Jonathan Larroquette's favorite restaurant to go to for his birthday as a teen and early 20s child. They said hello to Haggis, but nothing more. Polls showed that Cruz was still ranked as the most powerful actor in Hollywood and even the most powerful celebrity in the world, but he also ranked number one as a celebrity that people would least like to have as their best friend. When Cruz returned to Gold Base, Miscavige showed off his Harley-Davidson V-Rod motorcycle, which had been custom-painted a candy apple red over a brushed nickel surface. Miscavige's brother-in-law, John Brousseau, known for his elegant craftsmanship, had done the work. In addition to overseeing the renovation on the free winds, Brousseau had installed bars on the doors of the hole shortly after Rathburn escaped. 
According to Brousseau, Cruz was drooling over the motorcycle. God, could you paint my bike like that, he asked. Brousseau looked at Miscavige, who nodded. Cruz brought in two motorcycles to be painted, a Triumph Rocket Three and a Honda Rune. Spielberg had given him the Honda after filming of War of the Worlds. It had already been custom-painted by the set designer. Brousseau had to take each motorcycle apart completely and nickel-plate all the parts before painting them. The church denies Brousseau's account. Cruz's attorney denies that his client ever saw Miscavige's motorcycle, motorcycle and claims we have photographic evidence showing that the actual painter doing the job is not Mr. Brousseau. However, the attorney did not provide the photos. Brousseau did provide photos of the work he says he did on each of Cruz's vehicles he claimed to have worked on. Cruz drove the newly painted rune with Katie on the back to the fan screening of his new movie at Grumman's Chinese Theater in June. After that, Brousseau was regularly assigned to work on special projects for Cruz. Shelley Miscavige had drafted Brousseau and seven other Sea Org members, along with many of Cruz's employees at Odin Productions, to work for more than two weeks on rehabilitating Cruz's least nine-bedroom mansion on Alpine Drive in Beverly Hills, painting, fixing the roof, doing cabinet work, stretching the carpet, rewiring, pressure washing the tennis court, weeding, and planting, repairing the irrigation system, even reorganizing the clothes in the closets. In the last week, Brousseau says he had at least a hundred contractors under his direction in order to get the house ready for Cruz. Brousseau and a Sea Org executive, Sean Marlowe, also oversaw the renovations on a Bluebird bus, like Hubbard's, that Cruz had purchased. Later, Cruz brought another bus, which he called the Silver Screen. Brousseau spent three months commuting to the Marathon Coach Factory in Coburg, Oregon, to oversee the retrofitting of the 40-foot vehicle into an elaborate motorhome. Brousseau estimates that the redesign cost about $1.5 million, but that doesn't include the labor of the, or that of Sea Org members in the Golden Era prop department who manufactured the furniture, countertops, and cabinetry. In 2006, Brousseau also customized a limousine for the star using the body of a Ford Excursion that he says Cruz acquired using the Scientology fleet discount. <laughs> Love typing that, that custom code from the old Scientology... Ford ads. <laughs> Katie was pregnant and wanted a new vehicle with a baby seat. Miscavige had wanted to impress the couple renovating the excursion at a local custom shop, but the job was poorly done. Miscavige purchased another excursion for Cruz to replace the one that had been botched. Meanwhile, Brousseau spent the next six months personally rebuilding the original excursion. He ripped the vehicle down to its frame and installed handmade reclining seats and wood paneling fashioned from a burl of a eucalyptus tree that had been toppled in a storm. He spent about $2,000, excuse me, he spent about 2,000 hours on the project. The materials were paid for by Cruz's production company, but according to Brousseau, the labor in that of about 10 Sea Org members was not compensated. It was about a half million dollar beauty, all done by me with other works from sci other folks from Scientology, Brousseau said. Brousseau had even carved a matching Mont Blanc pen out of the burl its own hidden storage case. Wow. Brousseau had even carved a matching Mont Blanc pan out of the burl, its own hidden storage case in the vehicle. When Cruz showed it to Katie, she was dazzled. She turned to Brousseau and said, Oh, JB, did you make it like that? Don't thank me, Brousseau quickly responded. I'm just the hammer. This, he said, pointing to Miscavige, is the hand that wields me. Cruz, who became a pilot while filming Top Gun, keeps a hangar at an airport in Burbank for his airplane collection. 
Sea Org members completely renovated the hangar, installing a luxurious office that had been fabricated at Golden Era Productions. Brousseau says that the furniture, a dry bar, table, and chairs, desks, etc., were milled at an RPF base in Los Angeles. So people in the hole were making all this stuff. Brousseau took dozens of photographs documenting his handiwork on the star's behalf. No member of the Sea Org has spent more time in cruiser service than Tommy Davis, who was viewed within the church as a star's special handler and personal assistant, who is featured heavily in the documentary version of this book. Although Davis maintains that he provided similar services for other celebrities, his assignment to cruise was his primary duty between 2000 and 2004. However, he asserted, quote, none of the church staff involved were coerced in any way to as assist Mr. Cruz. Church staff and indeed church members hold Mr. Cruz in very high regard and are honored to assist him. In June 2006, Shelley Miscavish disappeared. She had spent her whole life conveying orders and gathering intelligence for a powerful, erratic, domineering church leader, first for Hubbard and then for her husband. She and Miscavige were always respectful toward each other in public, if not openly affectionate. As she gained power within the church, she began to see the two of them as reincarnations of Simon Bolivar and Manuela Sands. And the lesson she drew from that previous existence was that she needed to be fiercely protective of her mate to keep him from making the kinds of mistakes that his character was destined to commit. In the eyes of some Sea Org members, Shelley was brittle and imperious, but Rathburn noted that she sometimes objected when Miscavige's physical assaults threatened to get out of hand. No one else did. That spring, Shelley returned from a free wind's voyage before her husband did, and in his absence, she decided to arrange the org board herself. There were no settled posts, executives were still churning in the hole, and the management structure was a mess. Taking matters into her own hands, Shelley made a number of appointments. Soon after her husband came back, Shelley's mood visibly changed. Her brother-in-law, John Brousseau, observed that she looked cowed. Quote, the bulldog was gone. Shortly before she disappeared, she asked Mike Rinder if Dave still had his wedding ring on. Then she vanished. Although a missing person report had been filed, the Los Angeles Police Department will not comment on her whereabouts. She was escorted to her father's funeral in August 2007. That was the last time she was seen in public. Former Sea Org members say she is being guarded at a church facility in Running Springs, California, near Lake Arrowhead, in one of the several repositories for Hubbard's writings. It gets cold there in the winter. Miscavige sent Shelley a sweater and a pair of gloves for Christmas. In November 2007, Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes married in a 15th century castle outside of Rome. Among the celebrities attending were Jennifer Lopez, Mark Anthony, Will and Jada Pinkett Smith, Jenna Elfman, and even Brooke Shields. Once again, David Miscavige served as the best man. All right. And I think that brings us to the end for today. Uh, I loved reading that uh, little segment there, a uh, segment from Going Clear, Scientology, Hollywood, and the Prison of Belief by Lawrence Wright. It's a good one. It's definitely a good one. A lot of uh, good hard information on there, and it, it is probably the most uh, comprehensive current tome if you're going to pick one up. Um, but yeah, I highly suggest that you call 505-557-7932 if you made it this far into the program and tell me what you think. If you do or not, 
I uh, haven't. I will admit I haven't actually checked any of the voicemails yet. I intend to check them all at once for a future upcoming episode, uh, probably 20. And uh, so look forward to that. Until next time, uh, listen uh, to this.
Vamos a sentarnos en aquel parque. Traje una sorpresa. ¿De qué se trata? coming out called War of the Worlds that's been under wraps until today and a new love that has everybody talking. And I must say, I was hanging out with a new couple the other day.
coming to my Legends Ball with Katie. Was that the best fun? Was that? Yes, yes! Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing it. Yeah, it was great. Wasn't it? Was it? More, it was more than fun. It was more than great. It was... It was historic being in that room. Yeah. It was... What, what Oprah did by acknowledging those women, that, you know, I was, I was sitting there, I thought, you know what, they've not only had impact on women and African-American women, yeah. but on men, on the world. And they really have changed the culture for the better. And uh, it's a great inspiration. You, you sent me the most beautiful flowers. Thank you. I, it, you know what? I, I don't feel like it was enough. No, it wasn't Oprah, enough, Tom. Oprah, no. No, it Tom, it was. No, it wasn't enough. It wasn't. Yeah. I'm telling you, it was magic. No, was magic. Tom, this is over. I, tur I'm I'm turned, not, not I turned and looked at one point. You were standing in the chair going, yes! <laughs> yes! It was a black tie ball. He was standing in his black tie doodah. And it was, you were going, yes! I go, I love that enthusiasm. We, we were there, and, and uh, something great happened. And uh, one of the waiters came up and he gave me a rose. Yeah. And he said, this is... Uh, I hope Tina doesn't mind me saying this. This is from Tina Turner. Wow. And she said, uh, it was, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were sitting there and said, listen, because she's being honored as a legend tonight, she can't come over to the table, so would you please come over and say hello? Oh. Did, where was I? Did I miss and that so, shot? <laughs> which that was beautiful, man. And, and Kate and I looked at each other, we went, later on later on she was sit sitting at my house and she goes I'm I'm <laughs> I, I, I met tom cruise i met tom cruise tonight it was because he, he is as good looking oh my god he's so good looking. <laughs> and let me say this okay so everybody knows tom, tom was at my legend but tom brought along his new girlfriend actress katie holmes to the party now, you and Katie look like, look at this, look like you were having a very good time. And I have to say to you, I've known you for quite a while, and we've spent some hours together. And I've you are such a, a, an intensely, I mean, intensely, intensely, intense, intense, intense <laughs> but an intensely private person. And then now you are just out everywhere. Kissing and a hugging. I was on the dance floor. <laughs> Honest to goodness, I was on the dance floor. I looked over and I saw her doing this to you. <laughs> she was doing that to you. And you all were like, I, I, I go, what has happened to you? <laughs> what has happened to you? I'm in love. I'm in love. 
And it's one of these things where it's like, you know, you want me to be cool? I was like, yeah, I like her. You know, she's cool. <laughs> That's not me. That's not how I feel. So what, when, how, what, how, what happened? <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was, okay, so did it start with, is it true that you called her for a meeting for something? Is that true? <laughs> Can't to get into details okay, of everything? Yeah, no, no, yes. We... Yes. Because, you know. You don't really want to know this? It was. Okay, I have to tell you. Well, okay, tell me. Okay. Kate, sorry. I... <laughs> On the edge of their seats. They're like, they're like this, okay? <laughs> no, I know what he's doing. He's processing. He's, he's, trying, to, he's trying to just figure out what he is going to tell. What he isn't gonna tell. Yeah, okay, so, okay, process okay, so it. We met. You met. Yeah. Say you met. How? 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 Oh, jeez. Okay. How? How? Oh, ladies, please. Okay. <laughs> how? Oh, just how? How? Just how? I... I admired her, and I thought that uh, I wanted to meet her. So I called her, uh... because I wanted to meet her. <laughs> Honestly, and... I just... You see someone's work, and you, you hear about them, and you hear people what a special person she is and i i help a lot of people a lot of people call me for advice on career and life and there's you know i'm kind of known for that and, and so i just i meet with people and i wanted to meet this this woman and uh and i met her and she's okay i met her she's, you met her yes extraordinary she's truly she's It's like, you go, huh? And we're, there's so much that we have in common. And, and I just thought, I heard you I'm not going to be, I can't be cool. You know what I mean? I can't be laid back. I just, it's something that has happened and I feel I want to celebrate it. And, and it's something that, and I want to, I want to celebrate her. She's a very special, she's a very special woman. And you're going to, I'm sure you know her. You're going to get to know her even more. She's really. I heard that you met and you were so, both of you were so knocked over your feet that you ended up, you know, flying on your plane, having a sushi dinner. No, uh, no that's no, not true. That's not true. But, well, listen, we. That's what I wanted to know. I'm not flying on the plane, no. <laughs> Motorcycle ride on the beach, is that true? Because I, I like doing things. So Did you surprise like... her in Rome, covering with a hotel room in rose petals? Is that true? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Listen, this is a deal. I, I know Here how private you are. That's why I'm so. So that's stuff. Listen, I have to tell you, I, I love stuff like that. I, yeah. I'm romantic, and yeah. so I like 
treating a woman the way that she deserves to be treated. Like treating a woman the way that she deserves to be treated. Have you ever felt this way before? <laughs> You're gone. You are gone. This is the thing. This is the thing. I'm gone. Are you I don't sleeping? Care. Are you getting no. enough sleep? No, I'm not. No, no, no. no we I were here last night. We had, what was that place there? Popcorn Garrett's and popcorn. Oh you went to Garrett's popcorn. We had the cheese and the caramel popcorn. The cheese and the caramel. And then I had to have the Giordano's pizza. Oh my God. And then we had to finish it off with fudge pot, you know, oh at about God, one in the morning, there? two in the morning. No, we had, they, they, oh, they sent brought it over. over. We didn't, okay. we're in the hotel, you okay. know. Yeah, you're Tom Cruise. <laughs> you can get a little fudge pot sent over. And so, but Tom, have you, you've never, you've never, listen to me. Let's focus here. Okay. You've, you've never, you've never had this kind of feeling before. Right. No? Obviously not. <laughs> I, I, I honestly, I haven't. And really? I'm not going to pretend. <laughs> I can see you're not. You know, Katie once told Seventeen Magazine. Yes! Magazine that her dream was to marry Tom Cruise. Aww. So you know, I, I've been in the dream making business this year. Are you in the dream making business? I don't want to disappoint her. <laughs> I have to discuss with her personally, but you know. She's listening. I, I... Tom, does that mean well, you're going to ask happen. her to marry you? Does that mean you're going to ask her to marry you, Tom? <laughs> Oprah. Oprah, yeah. <laughs> Today? <laughs> you yeah. So does that mean you're going to ask her to marry you? i got to discuss it with her. you got to discuss it. <laughs> oh, that's fair. That's fair. That's... Everybody's going, oh, my God. You know, so, I mean... I'm, I, I just think that when something special happens, what I, well, the way I feel about it, I just... It's something, thank you. Thank you all for it. You know what? I want to celebrate. I like seeing people happy like yeah, you. I yeah. see what you do. Yeah. And I, I celebrate that. And, and so I feel like I want to share it with people because it's something that's very special. You want to share it with people? You want to share it with... I want to share it with my family, with Kate, with life, and the people that are happy for us. I heard you've already here. called her father, right? You've called her father? Whoa! Uh, I've spoken with her parents. I've spoken with her parents. 
So this is beyond smitten. This is gone. I'm standing on your couch. Yeah, I know. This is gone. <laughs> this is gone. This is gone. She's, she's an extraordinary woman. She really is very, you know, very, very special person. Yeah. So what is it about her? What is it? I tell you, her generosity, her... Uh, Ilan Vital, her life force. She has a spirit that is, uh, you know, I. She cares about other people, yeah. and she has uh, a real joy yeah. about life. Yeah. Well, that's and, infectious. And the two of us together was just a force to reckon with. <laughs> <laughs> a force to reckon with. Yeah. And she's just. And she's met your kids. I know because yeah, the kids were at the. She's met my mother, my family. Yeah. My, you know, and so. Can we meet her? <laughs> hey, can you meet her? You yeah. will be meeting her sometime. Oh. Oh, gosh. There's a guy in the audience. <laughs> Just you want to treat them right. Yeah, you want to treat them right. With great respect, as, as I do all women. And, and when it's your woman, you just you treat them with respect and love. Yeah. And, you know, I don't play games. I heard you know? this wonderful quote from an artist who said, a woman named Artist Lane, though, who was unveiling a painting. And a friend of mine was telling me that she said, as she was unveiling this painting of this couple who'd been together for many years, she says, you can always tell a man by the kind of woman that is with him. You can always tell the man by the kind of woman. So, if you're talking about somebody who has that kind of life force, that kind of spirit, that kind of love, that's Kate. That's Kate. I don't know what happened to you, Man, boy. I don't either. Yeah, yeah. It just happens, doesn't it? Just, it? it just happens. Just now, when did, how soon after meeting her did, did it happen? You must have thought it was going to happen. That's why you wanted to meet her, right? Don't we have War of the Worlds, too? Yeah, we're we? going to do that. <laughs> we're going to do that. We're going to do that. That's why you're here. Okay, so what was the question okay. again? How soon, how soon after meeting her did you have this jump on the couch flip-flop thing? <laughs> well, it wasn't like you said you met her and you went, oh, my Look, God. I don't play games. You don't play I games. I don't. You know what? And there's a thing we were, you know, I mean, Stephen, I was, I, when I called Stephen, you know, I was, you know, he's a good buddy, and I was talking to him about it. He's like, uh, you know what? There's things where... You just know about life. You just, and it hits you, and you want to... Steven Spielberg's <laughs> Yeah, oh, yeah. And everybody's going, Steven, oh, yeah. Paul Steven. <laughs> Steven so Spielberg did War of the Worlds, War of the Worlds, which we're all going to see this summer. We're no. on the edge of our seat waiting to see... But I'm not saying that because, yeah. because we have War of the Worlds. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm just giving it to you. I know, he's a friend. I'm just giving it to you. What did he say? He said, go with it, he Tom. He said, man... He said, you look so happy. Yeah. You know, my sister said, you look so happy. And it was just a thing where it's, I said, this, it just, that was it. She's, I'm looking at her and, and, uh, you know, it was just, it was beyond cool. It's, it's beyond cool. It's, there's a point of, you know, I, uh, I love relationships and I always want, you know, I'm, I'm the type of man who is, you know, that's it. And, uh, I don't. You know, that's just who I am. And so, and uh, it just happened. And it was just, I kept looking and going, I kept going, you're amazing. You're amazing. You're amazing. Thinking, you know what I'm saying? This, this yeah. woman's amazing. And you know what? It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a thing of, 
I'm happy that I'm with her, and she's amazing. Even like, I'd think the same thing even if she wasn't with me. She's just, you know, amazing. But okay. uh, well, that's anyway. that's it. That's it. I'm happy for you. That's it. <laughs> and lovely and nice because I, I always thought you know what anyone who's not happy for me they're just not invited to the party <laughs> that's the way i look at it <laughs> premier magazine recently named tom cruise the greatest living movie star of all time days until his summer sci-fi thriller War of the Worlds hits theaters on June 29th. Mark your calendar is June 29th. Is get, it's getting big buzz because no one's been able to get a peek of Tom in action until now. I wasn't even able to see it because Mr. Spielberg is still hard at work making it. Here's it's not done the, yet. It's not done yet. Here's the footage we were able to get our little tin pan hands on. Just a little bit. Take a look. War of the Worlds is one of the best-kept movie secrets in Hollywood. Fans are anxiously awaiting any little detail about this summer's highly anticipated blockbuster. And we have the first shots of Steven Spielberg's masterpiece. Tom Cruise is Ray, a self-centered dad estranged from his family. You know what your problem is? I can think of a couple of women would be happy to tell you. Ray is taking care of his masterpiece. Tom Cruise is Ray, a self-centered dad estranged from his family. You know what your problem is? I can think of a couple of women would be happy to tell you. Ray is taking care of his two children for a weekend, when suddenly the world comes under a vicious attack from an unknown force. He's right behind our house. Lightning doesn't strike twice. <laughs> There's something down there and it's moving. Mass hysteria spreads as the entire human race realizes aliens have invaded. And his family are forced to run for their lives. Get in, Manny, or you're gonna die. But can they survive? Get out! Get out! Get out! Directing genius uh, Steven Spielberg couldn't be here today because he's literally in a race against the clock to get this movie finished on time. But he sent along a message to Tom. Did he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hello, Oprah and Tom. How are you guys? I'm sorry I'm not there with you. you. I don't have the luxury <laughs> of being there with you because I am still working on War of the Worlds. 
It's going to be amazing. Working with Tom is one of the greatest gifts I've ever been given by this business. What you see on your show, Oprah, what your audience sees of Tom is how I know Tom. There are no secrets. He doesn't have an agenda. This is the thing I love about you so much, Tom, is that everything that we're appreciating and understanding, just listening to you talk and, and watching you, this is who you are. And this is why you have so many millions of fans all over the world. I am feeling good about our movie. And I just hope that Tom will say a little bit about War of the Worlds and you don't just obsess about Tom and Katie and Katie and Tom and Tom and Katie and Katie and Tom. I mean, I mean talk a little bit about War of the Worlds, okay? Because we're opening really soon. Bye, guys. Stephen gave each other some pretty cool gifts when the movie wrapped, right? Well, Stephen. I don't know what you give Stephen or Man. what do you give you. I gave him a GT350, which is which is the car that I drive in the movie. But this one is the best one in the world. The one wow. That, oh, there it is. Yeah. So I, what I did was I blindfolded him and made him put his hands up and then surprised him. And then he turned around and said, OK, now close your eyes. He did successful. What do you mean, close my eyes? I started laughing. He goes, I got a gift for you. And he got me this motorcycle, Rune. And I took, it was a good buddy of mine's uh, birthday. And I actually, Kate and I, we went on a motorcycle ride. I said, <laughs> so I took, we, you know, I took her riding on that. You know why you said her name? You know why you said her name? Because when you were in This in Love, you can't stop saying the person's yeah, name. Yeah, it's just, I'm thinking. You just want to get them in, I took Kate on You want to get them in sentences, wherever yes, you exactly. can. <laughs> OK, one of Hollywood's, uh, uh, Young actresses stars with Tom in the movie. We tracked down Dakota Fanning all the way across the globe now to get the scoop. Yes, we did. Uh, working with Tom. Here she is. Yeah. Hi, Oprah and Tom. It's Dakota here in Australia filming Charlotte's Web. And Oprah, I know you're, you're in this movie too. And I just want to let you know that your goose is behaving like a true lady. You'd be real proud of her. <laughs> Want to go inside? It's okay. I was real excited about meeting Tom for the first time, and I remember he was coming out of all this dirt and explosions and black smoke, and he walked out and he came over and he put his hands on my shoulders and he said, "We're making more of the worlds, baby." And you know, my kids and grandkids. Every day, something different would happen. She's got this whole Scarlett O'Hara thing going on, you know what I mean? We were in this big tank. Tom and I and Dustin, who plays my brother, would go underwater and even said on the speaker, I have a little surprise for you. And so suddenly, the Jaws music came on and it was... And it was so scary. And then he said, action. And then Tom and I were like laughing underwater with a bunch of bubbles coming out of our mouth. It was hilarious. Tom took me on a helicopter ride around the set. And it was so amazing to be in a helicopter with Tom Cruise. He's such a wonderful person at heart. It's part of a contract. I have to carry her everywhere. Tom, I just want to thank you. You made me a better actress. I'll never forget my memories with you, and I love you. And thank you, Oprah, again, you know, for letting me a part of, be a part of the show. I love her. She's She's lovely. Lovely. No, she's lovely. she's lovely. So we feel like you just I just want to protect her. It's like, okay. And yes. everyone meets her. But you know what? She's she's 10, 11. She's incredibly bright. And you know what? I uh, I told her, I said, I don't care how old you are, you're a great actress. And uh, so I'm I'm here if you need anything. Okay, we'll be right back. <laughs> 
Coming up, what's the best advice Tom's ever given his children? Find out next. time with Tom and when I was in Oslo with you the people were like passing out and the girls you know the people are standing outside the hotel screaming I'm like I want to go to bed <laughs> you know, Tom, Tom, is he coming this way oh he's coming that is it and he is such a great guy I mean we're in the restaurant he's the guy back in the kitchen with the people I'm like come on Tom you don't have to thank everybody who cooked everything <laughs> He's like talking to the guy who pours the water. Do you like that job? Do you like that? <laughs> anyway. I'm interested. You're very interested, very curious about I'm everybody. About people. Okay. And I feel honored. I really you do. do. I feel honored to be where I am. I do. It's no joke. No. No, it's no joke. And I would have to say, you know, I feel honored too. And I like people, but I don't know if I like them that much. <laughs> Because yes, we know we were riding in the same car, and I'm like, Tom, do you have to speak to every single person? Okay, when Tom's fans heard he was coming on our show, they practically crashed our website with questions. What are our, uh, your big fans? Stacey Nolan? Stacey, who are you? Where are you? Okay, you have a question for Tom? What advice have you given your daughter about boys, and what advice have you given your son about girls? You know, it's, it's, uh, they're really smart, and they're very, they're good people. So it's just, they're people. And I just advise them to be decent, and they just know, you know, they're they're really respectful of themselves, and because uh, aren't know they people, ten? What are they? Ten and 10 twelve? And twelve, and yeah. I just know there's they they have integrity, and I just tell them never compromise your own personal integrity. It doesn't matter. I meant to ask you this, and also Steven Spielberg. You have a biracial son. Mm -hmm. Steven has biracial children. It never seems to be, it, you never have mentioned it. You never mention race. You never say anything about it. Yet your son is obviously of a different race. How did you, how? Well, look, we're, he's from the human race. From the human he's race. mankind. I don't see. Was that ever discussed in the family, though? Did you have a conversation? Did you have a conversation with him about it? Not, never even discussed in the family. I mean, it's... What's there to talk about? He's my son. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a point of... Uh, I just... Listen, that's how I feel about it. It's really? something... Uh, he's my son. Yeah. And, and, and I... I love him. And I've never... I've never... Uh, I've just never thought about color. I've never really? thought about that at all. Really? Race, I've never, I just have not thought about that. No, well, I, I, you listen, obviously, I know you haven't thought about it. It's not no. an issue for you because... No, but, but not even for, for him. And it's not a, a point of... I just, listen, I don't believe in that. We're all here together. Uh -huh. and we got to work it out together, okay? Yeah. okay? So funny. That's what brings about understanding. This is so interesting. I was with Stephen and Kate a while back, and you know they they don't talk Kate. about. Uh, uh, not your his Kate. Kate. That's his Kate. Yesterday, I said, you know, you got to talk to Kate. And he said, Kate, why don't you, you know? Okay. Oh, see, you just had to say your name. You just had to say your name. But I was with Stephen and Kate, and they <laughs> and they they have a little girl. They have a little girl, and they they never discuss race, but she's got 
black girl's hair. So it's uh, like, you know, the hair is out there. Isn't she oh, amazing? amazing? Her hair is so amazing. So Kate said she had to work out that braiding Those children. Thing. I, I, you know? I, I love their children. Did you see Steven Spielberg braiding hair? Yeah. It's so cute. They've got beautiful children. They have beautiful children. So how are you doing on the joint parenting? That's working out very well? Great. I think Nick and I are doing a terrific job. I'm really proud of how we're raising the kids. It's uh, the thing we, it's, we believe that the, you know, the children, they're, you see them, they have their own opinions. Yeah. And that's something that we both respect and value and they make their own choices in life. And, and you know, I've always felt it's just you educate someone to where they can think for themselves and they yeah. can make decisions for themselves. And uh, I, I think we're... we're in life and, and you know I've always felt it's just you educate someone to where they can think for themselves and they yeah. can make decisions for themselves and uh, I, I think we're, we're both really proud the way you handle the kids you know what yeah, that's man. a great yeah. thing to be proud of I all of your most proud of coming up surprise in just seconds a Tom Cruise dream comes true and he has no idea